Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another Bible study here at the Tree Church. Today, I'm going to be joined by pastors Brandon and Michael, and we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 16 of Deuteronomy and all of chapter 17. We're going to be looking at really what the part that faith plays in our relationship with God. And what I love so much about these Bible studies is we're not just simply looking at information because the Bible was never meant to be information. It was meant to apply to our lives, to be life-changing. So we're going to look at not only what is said, what's been taught, we're going to look at how it applies to our life. And so we pray that this is a blessing to you. If you are new to being a disciple, or you would like to grow in your understanding of the practices that are vital to connecting with God on a regular basis, the Tree Church Classes is releasing an updated version of Intro to Christian Habits. This is a six-session masterclass that you can access on the Tree Church website and app. This course will guide you through habits such as prayer, worship, Bible study, gathering together, and generosity, and why they are so important to establish in our lives. This class is free and available for you to start anytime after May 15th, 2022. Welcome back, everyone, to another Tree Church Bible Study. I'm Matthew Johnson, lead pastor here at the Tree Church, and today I'm joined by two of our pastors, uh, one is uh, Pastor Brandon, who's over our discipleship. Hello, everyone. And Pastor Michael, who handles all things creative at our church. Yeah, thanks for having me. So today, in our Bible study, what we're going to do is we're going to conclude what we looked at, began to look at uh, last week in chapter 16. So we have a couple of sections we're going to uh, look at as we transition to cover all of chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. So chapter 16 are three different festivals that Moses is commanding the, the people of Israel to celebrate on an annual basis. Uh, each one of these had a really practical side to it, also had a spiritual side to it, uh, practical in that they had to make sacrifices, they had to go back to Jerusalem, and everything represented something greater uh, than what they were actually doing. So I'm not going to go into all that detail because you can easily connect with the previous Bible study about that. But as Moses is talking about this concept, what each of these festivals, as of all of obedience in Deuteronomy, it requires faith. R the root of everything that God commands us requires faith, that we can trust in His ways, and, and when He asks us to do things that don't make sense, we still just trust Him. We know in the goodness of God, and so everything He commands us to do in faith, we can believe and walk in obedience. Today is going to be no different. So whereas in chapter 16, He's covering festivals, which in that sense, I think all of them are good things, would it actually even be fun for the community because mm -hmm. there are some celebrations. Today, we're going to look at some heavy things, some things that um, I mean, I'll just tell you, we're talking about capital punishment today, mm -hmm. which is a very serious topic. It also is going to require faith. So what right. we'll see is on the, the, the positive things of life still require faith. Mm -hmm. The negative require faith, everything in between. And so I'm just going to jump right into where we left off last week. In chapter 16, picking up in verses uh, 18 through 20, it says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns, that the Lord your God has given you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. I love this next verse, how it's worded. Justice and only justice <laughs> you shall follow, right. that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God has given you. So it's important to recognize in, in these laws what God is doing. This is a group of people who have been slaves initially for 400 years, so generational slavery, which meant everything that they did was under the authority and laws of a different culture. They've been set free at this point. They've wandered for 40 years, but they really haven't been a community. They, they've been uh, a community in the sense of they've been transitioning through the wilderness, but they haven't right. set up communities. Mm -hmm. They haven't set up structures. So when God gives them the law, uh, many times theologians break it into three categories. He gave them the moral law, like you, we would say the Ten Commandments are those and, and some other things, things that are always right and wrong. He gave them ceremonial law, the different things to do with sacrifices. But then he'll have laws like this, which are more the civic laws of how to set up a community. And the first thing he highlights is you have to focus on justice. Right. Um, you have to appoint judges. Judges would have been people that would have literally, very similar to our culture now, People would have brought disputes in front of them. They would have heard both sides and make a judgment, make a decision for them. And, and so when we look at this, justice 
is at the center of God's heart. Right. It is who he is. God is just. It's not just something he does. Mm. But God celebrates justice. He, re- he blesses it. But he also will resist and condemn injustice. Right. So, Michael, I want to go to you first. I, I, sure. I know this genuinely. You have a heart that really does value justice. It's something that you talk about a lot. Um, I've seen through social media and through discussions with you. It's something that you champion. You've taught on it, actually, on Sundays yeah. when, when you had the opportunity to teach. Can you just talk about that? Why is this topic so near and dear to your heart? Sure, man. Well, first of all, I love the way you said that, that justice is at the center of God's heart. Mm. And for more than anything else, if justice is at the center of God's heart, saying no to justice is saying no to God. It's saying no to not only God, but who he is and then the image of him in us. We're saying no to the very design of how he intentionally made us. And that's something... I think we should take super seriously. And then that, so that's like just mo- the more we're designed that way. So I want to operate that sure. way past that. You know, I was really blessed. I actually got to spend some time there this weekend. I went to go see my, my grandma, my mom's mom, went to her house for the weekend. It was awesome. I got to hang out. And she is someone who lived in a time who experienced very uh, dramatically what injustice looks like. Mm-hmm. Jim Crow still around uh, white people and black people can't drink from the same water fountain. And she instilled in me very young that that is unacceptable, that she mm-hmm. said people are, um, people are going to try to pretend like this wasn't a big deal. People are going to try to, you know, brush this under the rug. The reality is it was horrifying. And I want you to know that I remember her taking me to like an operational farm as a kid. I was pretty young and they basically walked you through what, uh, what the underground railroad would have looked like and trying mm-hmm. to get from this place to this place and trying to show you those moments of fear and how it would have impacted somebody. Mm-hmm. She did the same thing talking about World War II and the Holocaust uh, to this day on her mantle, which is like, this is the, this is the peak point of her home over her mantle mm-hmm. place is a picture of Israel with God's hands around it because she's so passionate about marginalized people. She's just like, those are God's people. So I take it seriously. Um, you know, whether it be race, whether it be nationality, any, anybody who is oppressed, you just at such a young age made it clear of like, this is unacceptable. And if you're going to love Jesus, you're going to love those people. You can't separate the mm-hmm. two. And isn't that, isn't that true that injustice makes you long for justice more than anything else? Absolutely. It, it, you will never appreciate justice more than when you've been a victim of injustice. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I know it, from the simple things, and when you're a kid and your sibling right. does something unfair, you know that's probably <laughs> yeah. like 95% of what I solve with my kids mm-hmm. is the injustice of their life. Yeah. But when you, as you're an adult and you start to experience it, it can feel helpless, mm-hmm. you, you, know, you feel powerless, and, and you, you desire it, you crave for it. What's fascinating about God is his heart for those who have been marginalized, right. those who, and that's what this command's about is, set up a system that can protect all people. Don't set up a system that's just for the powerful. And, and in this, he tells them, for you that have been given that position, that comes with an extra responsibility. You, you're the one that's not, not to take a bribe, not to show partiality. Brandon, as for you and your role as a leader, what does that mean to you, that, that calling? And, and even to go a little bit deeper, what are the systems that you set up as a pastor, as a leader, to make sure that you remain healthy mm-hmm. as a leader, because this is what he's saying, put a system in place so that the system is good for the community, but you as a leader are protecting yourself so that you don't become this way. Yeah, the biggest thing I think for me is recognizing what exactly even God or Moses is communicating in this moment. And the concept is that God is that standard for determining justice in our lives. Absolutely. And I think even just a side note, anytime that I've tried to use you know, my own judgment or my own justice to kind of justify something or to look at a situation, I'm always missing maybe some of the influence of what God is trying to Mm -hmm. do in that moment. So I always have to view justice through the lens of what does God want? So I'm going to seek that first above anything else. And even you're talking about growing up, my wife is a school teacher and she experiences a lot of just the situations of kids' lives and the things that Mm -hmm. they're dealing with. And a lot of even maybe some of the injustices that they experienced in, the, yeah. in their home lives. And so all of us, you know, in our situation and then having those conversations about how do we approach situations like this, it's always, man, God has to be at the forefront of how we handle our jobs, our right. home life, everything, and making sure that we're instilling those in, in my ministry, but also in my home life as well. So. Yeah, last night I went out with uh, my son Titus. We went out to dinner and then we went and caught a movie. And Titus is a, has a real inquisitive mind, and mm-hmm. he likes to ask me questions about the Bible and about leadership. And, uh, and at times, you know, he's wrestling with things I wish that my kid didn't have to. He's 14, <laughs> sure, you know, yeah. and, I, uh, and he's like my height, so at times he can seem older. 
but it, you know, I wish like just as a father, I want to protect him. But one of the questions he asked me, which was, was really sobering mm-hmm. is he said, dad, why does it seem like so many pastors are failing morally? Mm-hmm. And, wow. and he connected a little bit to like a certain podcasts that were exposing churches. Um, I didn't, you know, I don't necessarily love <laughs> those podcasts <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, but he was just asking that question. And, and so we had a really good conversation about at times leaders don't put protections around themselves and they get a position of authority without any accountability. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is they start to believe the hype. They start to believe that in, in their own abilities, they're like, basically they're above the law right. and then they become extremely dangerous as leaders. Um, Michael, why don't you speak to, again, kind of similar question I gave Brandon in your own life, but also what you recognize within our culture, what are the things that we put in place so that we're not that way, where we haven't become desensitized and where we're, you know, explaining away really sinful behavior? Yeah, absolutely. It really starts with you and what you've taught me when I first started working here, this, this idea I don't know that I've ever heard you phrase it this way, but this is how I've always interpreted it. Be the first person in the room to change your mind, to say I was wrong, to say, oh, wait, that's totally better. Let's do that now. Mm-hmm. There's such a deep level of humility about the way we approach ideas and concepts and thoughts. And whether it be a cool creative element for Easter Sunday, that's more in our space. We're going to talk about a discipleship event. Mm-hmm. There's such an open handness because there's a lot of humility there. And if you don't have that humility, that's where it's immediately when I talk to a leader, there's this massive red flag, mm-hmm. specifically a church leader. Like I, it may totally. have been 10 years since you said I was wrong. It may have been <laughs> right, yeah, a yeah, long yeah. time before you actually heard someone else's idea and mm-hmm. said, oh, that's actually better. So for me, you know, I've been at the tree for like seven years now, coming up on seven years. And I remember, I just remember that flooring me so much of like, wow, Matt says he's wrong a lot. And that's like, mm-hmm. cause it was so foreign to me because prior mm-hmm. places that I've worked, um, and, and not even just in church world, just human beings in general, we have this impulse to hold on to what, to I'm, I, I'm right. Mm-hmm. Like I found myself in that spot where I know I'm wrong and I'm still arguing. It's like, okay, <laughs> this is dumb. When you see people like that, and it always leads to these massive red flags of like, what else is happening in your life that you have no humility and that there's no accountability, that there's mm-hmm. no potential for justice because you're so holding on to like, whatever it could be your image. It could be your ego. It could be a thousand things. But all I know is without that humility, it's dangerous. And our, and yeah. something we see in our staff is it's just unacceptable. Yeah. I think that is the most critical point that you made is, is the necessity for humility. Mm-hmm. Because I, I agree with you. If you can't think of a time, I would even say recently, <laughs> where you realized you were wrong, totally. then there's a good chance you're super arrogant, yeah. right? And then if you're arrogant, you're treating people arrogantly, which means you're hurting people. Right. And you're missing even like the heart of what he's saying here, of, of the concept of justice. I know for me, like in my own marriage, in my arrogance, I used to argue with Mary because I valued the process of debate, not realizing that I was being, like there was injustice in our marriage because I wasn't listening to her heart. I wasn't connecting to her. And I remember the moment, I've shared this from the front before, but I remember the point. So this is, this is the truth. My wife has never yelled at me, you know, like that's, that's her nature. That's a, uh, that's a testament to her, not me. Like, I've never, <laughs> sure. I've never done anything to be yelled yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she, <coughs> she just looked at me one time, and this is the harshest. <coughs> excuse me, I just get so choked up. No, I'm sorry, <laughs> I just swallowed wrong out there. But no, she, uh, she just looked at me and said, "You know, you can be such a jerk sometimes." And she said it calm, which is almost worse, right? Like if someone Way screams worse. it at you, you're like, "Okay, it's yeah, this, we're doing this, right?" Yeah. But and she's never been mean, and she said, but I just realized, and I remember, like, I went to prayer after that, and I was like, God, help me, what, whatever, whatever I'm missing, convict me. And I realized it was, I was not creating a culture hmm. where I was honoring her. Hmm. I wasn't creating a culture to protect wow. her, and so there was injustice. And, and I think this is what we have to recognize. We have to look around and say, okay, have I created a culture that is safe? Have I created a culture where people can grow and, and, and people can be blessed? So, all right. That's the first two verses. (laughs) I think we always start our Bible studies this way where, you know, we talk for a while. Okay, so now he transitions. So still with the heart of faith, he's going to transition to talking about acceptable worship. Um, So now we're uh, in the last just couple verses of chapter 16, verse 21. He says, You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. Uh, th- there's some mystery around this. I don't know if you guys in your research saw the same thing. And I, I remember years ago even studying the concept of Asherah or Ashram, uh, the statues and stuff, mm-hmm. because I would see it all the time in Scripture, and there's some debate. Here's what basically I found was 
it obviously represented a Canaanite god, and, and many believe a goddess, uh, the goddess of fertility or reproduction. Um, and so what God is saying here is basically based on the, the same concept of the Ten Commandments, he's not going to compete. He's not looking to be one of your gods, right. one of your sources of hope. He wants to be your sole God, your sole source of hope. And so what he's, he's saying to them is that the type of worship that he will accept is the worship where he's number one. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Anyone want to argue with that? <laughs> no. No, <laughs> yeah. and I, I think that's such a common theme throughout this entire book. It's just the, the amount of times it's just layers and layers and layers of don't, don't worship idols. Please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just Moses. Like, mm-hmm. Please don't. Please just don't do it. You know what I mean? Because, because it's important. And because they're also talking about somebody who saw the, the negative consequences of when this is not followed. And so right. that's where there's, there's such a harsh like emphasis of like, man, we're not going to, we're not going to play with this. Yeah. I think it's so interesting that that word beside is in there mm-hmm. because I know we might go on to talk about this a little bit, but the idea that they can be one and the same or beside each other, yeah. that they are competing with one another, maybe potentially at times. And, and that's such an important word that kind of stands out to me as I'm processing through it. For sure. And, and we've acknowledged this a couple of times. In their culture, they had physical representations of their hope, right. mm-hmm. in essence. Mm-hmm. So if they if they thought, okay, we recognize somehow, maybe they didn't fully understand it scientifically, we, we understand somehow the sun plays into our crops, the rain plays into our crops, we get that. Uh, we recognize that there's fertility. Some mm-hmm. people have children, some don't. They would put their hopes in those concepts, and they would create a statue for them. Mm-hmm. And so, they, like you're saying, like that became a part of their worship. And God says, I don't want a statue. And basically for two reasons. One is I don't want you to worship a statue because I, I want a relationship. I'm a living God. I want a relationship. But two, I don't want to be on a mantle. I don't right. want to be one of many. I want you to get rid of all of them recognizing I'm your mm-hmm. hope. And I think right. nowadays we don't create physical statues, but we still worship false gods. We put yeah. false hopes in things. And uh, and I think, again, it's just the challenge of it. And, and Michael, you said the fact that it says it so many times repetitively. I almost wonder how much of that is is God wanting it that many times? Uh, again, this isn't great theology I'm about to say, but like <laughs> versus Moses, who has had right. to lead this group just of disgruntled. people. Disgruntled. Yeah. yeah. Where like he just keeps catching himself. Did you just going, how tired he's got to be yeah. at this point? Stop <laughs> worshiping other gods. Right. Stop disobeying. You guys get that way as a parent? Where oh, you're just like, gosh, yes. Listen, I love you, little human being, but I need you to stop <laughs> yes. that yeah. behavior. Yeah, I think sure. about the golden calf moment, how frustrating that would be. <laughs> <laughs> just he's he, up there worshiping, the seeking God on their behalf, right. and he comes I mean, down. He's so with this golden cap, and he he crushes it up, puts it into powder, <laughs> makes him drink it. He is so bitter in that moment. It's like he's done. Yeah, he's done. Like you do want like did God tell him to do that? You're like yeah. no, that was Probably all. Not. Yeah. Yeah. He's like you. That's just that's just good old fashioned rage, man. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, well, there, well, there's even an earlier an earlier patch in Deuteronomy specifically where where he hits on saying like. You know how insulting it is to God to make an idol out of something that literally he created than exactly, to worship that yeah. as a replacement? And I think that's where, there's you just, again, you catch all these layers of it. It's, it's so disrespectful. And at this point, it could just be rage, upset, anger. But Moses is like, we're not doing this anymore. Like, we right. have to move on. God has something better that's mm-hmm. in his plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You will never worship that idol again. <laughs> 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 I'll, I'll make sure of that. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's transition to chapter 17. Let's look at the first verse. He says, uh, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, uh, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So there's a couple of layers to this. Um, one is, again, we're, we're seeing this idea of what pure worship looks like. Yeah. Um, so if you go back to chapter 16 and you have the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, a part of each one of those was a concept of first fruits. It, it's the idea that the first portion is the faith portion. Right. To give to God first before you have everything else come in uh, that would come in, you're saying, God, I believe you're going to provide. So if I give you the firstborn animal, which he, he commanded, I'm believing there'll be a second, third, and fourth. If I give you the first fruits of our crops before I bring in all the crops, I'm believing you're going to bless the harvest. Uh, we've, we've looked at in Deuteronomy the concept of the tithe of giving God 10% because it's, it's faith. It's saying, God, right. I believe with 90%, you can do more with that than I can with 100%. In this, it's the same concept. There could be a tendency that they could look at their animals and go, well, that one has a blemish. That one has right. a, a bad leg. That has less value. I can't sell it. You know, I'll give that to God, and then I'll keep what is valuable. And, and Moses, once again, clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit, is, yep. is saying, no, what God— what God deserves and God demands is yeah. one and the same. 
and he wants a sacrifice of something that is an act of worship. I don't right. want to give God nothing. Uh, this past week, I was in my devotions, and I'm going through Genesis, and I'm, I'm reading uh, the story of when, um, when uh, Sarah passes away. I think it's Sarah. It could be Isaac. I apologize. I, I'm doing this kind of off the top of my head. But when one of them died, um, the, the, the husband goes and wants to buy land so that he can create basically a family tomb. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was so respected in the community, they were like, no, you can have it. And he's like, no, I really want to buy it. And they're like, no, 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 like seriously, you can have it. And he's like, listen, basically, I love my wife and my family so much. I don't want to bury them in something that costs me nothing. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay. And they're like, okay. And so he pays. And, and then I remember the story of David. Mm-hmm. Uh, David, when he sinned at the end of his ministry um, as king, when he sinned and he was going to, God tells him, go to this specific spot and, and make a sacrifice and I'll forgive you. And he goes there, and this guy sees the king coming. He's kind of terrified, but the king says, I just want to buy land so I can do an altar. The guy goes, just take it. And, and David says this line that I love. He says, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. So, and, and I think, again, this is this the heart of it is in worship. Worship should cost you something. Worship should absolutely. be an expression and, and in faith and in sacrifice. And, and I know both of you are worshipers. So will you just take a moment, each of you, and just speak to that of what worship means to you of, how, what does that practically look like? I can say a term like it should cost you something, but like, what does that mean to you to to live a life that says to God, God, I really do want to bless you? Yeah, yeah. I think there are so many days that I come into, whether it's just my regular routine of worship or it's a purpose service that I get to be a part of, where I am surrendering constantly things that I don't want to surrender, maybe, <laughs> you know, I have a resistance yeah. to wanting to surrender. Or it's just a matter of things that haven't been changed in my heart, you know? And mm-hmm. so I'm coming into worship with the eager expectation every single time of God, you know, I'm dealing with this, I'm frustrated with this, mm-hmm. I'm annoyed by this, or I, whatever, you know, the consequences yeah, so I was going to ask you to go a little bit more, again, you can be vague, yeah. but when you say something like you don't want to surrender to God, what does that look like? Because I think sometimes people might think maybe that mm-hmm. pastors kind of float above problems. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. And what does that look like? And like, practically in your life, where you go, you know what, God, I'm wrestling with this, and I don't want to give this up, or I don't want to surrender this. Can you can you speak it in general terms? I'm not trying to put you on the spot to embarrass you, but no, you get that's what I'm fine. What's the worst thing you've ever done? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think even in times of let's just take leadership or in ministry as an example. So we get some pushback on certain things that we're doing, you know, whether it is somebody disagrees with an approach that we're taking in ministry or somebody disagrees with how I handled a situation. Mm-hmm. I could easily respond in that moment with my emotions, what I feel, what I want, right. you know, and most often it's it's hard not to respond in those moments. Yeah. But um, even today I was dealing with a situation where I have to come before God and, and before others and humble myself in a way that says, could I be wrong in this moment? Mm-hmm. Could I surrender this, you know, and is it necessary to surrender this, you know, or do I have the right heart? And so I think even in those moments in worship, I'm coming before God and I'm surrendering that and trusting mm-hmm. that he's going to lead me in that, even though it's not my personal preference to always right. do so. So <laughs> in honor of God right. and in honor of the position he's placed you in, mm-hmm. you make a difficult choice because you know it honors God, advances the kingdom, loves people well. And yet, again, I'm not, we're not saying this to lift pastors up, but yet you're the one who, who suffers, right? You're the one yeah. who has to yeah. feel that pain and that tension. Yeah. Mike, I know you feel the same way at times. Do you want to speak to that? For yeah. A well, you know what? When I first, this is actually a passage that I look to a lot when talking about musicianship and the in excellence in the way that we worship of like, you'll, you'll have, I've had moments like I can specifically think about like playing guitar where I'm just like, it's like 11 o'clock at night and I'm really tired and my kids are crazy all day. And this is the shot. This is my moment where I have to learn the guitar part for Sunday morning. Like, okay, here we go. And I, you can sometimes excuse things in your brain and be like, nobody, nobody cares. Like there's like <laughs> such, a small, <laughs> such a small percentage of people in the room who really care about like, is that reverb just a little too, you know, a little too right. muddy? That's going to, but in those moments, I think about something like this and just have to remind myself that God is worthy of my absolute best mm-hmm. no matter yeah. what. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, <clears throat> I, I talk about that a lot with like young worship leaders of just like that, that those little details. A lot of times people would be like, when what are like five things I can do to make worship better? And my answer is always like, boy, would I not know? Because the real answer is a, a billion really little things mm-hmm. and hypertension to detail. And all of them are so mundane and so boring. But at some point you have to ask yourself, is God worthy of it? Mm-hmm. Is God worthy of taking the time to do this? And I do that in, from, a, from a musician standpoint, but it's also an emotional standpoint. If, if I'm rolling in and I'm like, I'm not here. <laughs> like I'm not right. feeling this. I'm not, I'm not excited to be worshiping right now, but to say, is God still worthy of my worship right now? 
even if I don't feel like that, even if I'm frustrating, even if I'm hanging on to something, even mm-hmm. if whatever the case might be. And the answer just always has to be yes. Mm-hmm. As, as hard as it is and as difficult as it is, that's where, where that's what it looks like to not give him the, the blemished sheep that's already about to die that has mm-hmm. a broken leg. I don't right. want I don't want to offer him up that. I yeah. want to give him what I have. I want to give mm-hmm. him my very best. That's even where I've always my philosophy of even leading worship has been. I don't have the strongest voice in the world, and I don't. I'm not the best guitarist in the world. But man, I can be the most passionate. You know, I can give, give everything that I possibly have and trust that the Holy Spirit's going to make up for that deficit. That's what my best looks like. Mm-hmm. And I guess that that would be my encouragement to anybody thinking about worshiping this way. Of what does your best look like? If, if you're not giving that, you need to reevaluate because mm-hmm. he's worthy. Mm-hmm. All right. So I have, I have two responses to that. Um, things that were like stirred in my in my mind and heart. Uh, one is uh, Michael is without a doubt, my favorite worship leader in the world. So I, I know you, you always say like, I'm not the best guitar and whatever. And I'm like, you know what? But here's the reason I say that. I can logically know you're not the best vocalist in the world and guitar player. I get that. What I love is because I see, mm. I do see the person behind the scenes. And so when that person leads me in worship, I know how authentic it is. And so for me, I, I, there might be other worship leaders that are just as authentic, but I just don't know them personally. Sure. You, when you get up there, and I, and I think that is the element of it, is I know the authenticity of worship. And it's like, right. and I know this is what crazy as it sounds, the imperfections of your life lead me to worship more because sure. I see <laughs> you connecting to God on stage, and, and I love that. Uh, the second thing is, I, I think as a culture, you were talking about like it's so much easier to do these things. We are a culture of instant gratification. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, we have reduced worship to when I feel like it, I'll do it, which yes. is so dishonoring to God. Right. And and so that can be from church attendance to actual participation, where it's like, well, you know what? I don't I don't feel like doing that right now. And I think that's the God. You can have this broken sheep. Right. But when we say, you know what, I don't feel like it, but yet in faith I'm going to do it. That's that's the true gift of worship. Yeah, to God. I could talk about that all day too. Just as someone who who a, a big part of my job is just trying to create a meaningful worship experience for people where they can encounter God. And if they don't encounter God, then like, okay, how can we how can we eliminate more hurdles? And that's this whole conversation. But one of the most frustrating parts of that job is knowing that when people come in with that consumeristic mentality, I think I made this an- analogy before to you at some point, where it's almost like if you've seen that show, The Voice, where they're all turned turned around. And they hear a voice and they like it, so they hit the button on the chair and they're like, "Oh, that's great!" And they stand up in the chair. That's how it feels like sometimes as a worship leader. We're like, <laughs> like "I know, like I know, you, I know you hate this song. I got, like I understand that yeah, people yeah. are still facing the other way." And I'm sitting there, I'm like, do, "Like, how do I make you want to worship yeah. the Lord yeah. right now? Like, yeah. what do I, what do I need to do?" And then you'll see the same person. And I promise I'm leading worship. I'm not just like looking at <laughs> judging. But, but you'll see the same person. Then all of a sudden you, you play the hit and they, and they boom, hands up, they're in. And yeah. it's just like, mm-hmm. oh man, what if that was our d- default posture? Because yeah. that to me feels For like sure. the same That's exact problem. Yeah. That our default posture should be my best right now is worshiping you. Even if I don't like that singer, even if I hate this song, even if I want more hymns, even if I hate hymns, at, at some yeah. point worship has to be about our very best. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've shared my testimony, but the, the time in college where I committed that every from this day going forward, anytime there's worship, I'm going to engage it, has made all the difference in my life yeah. because of all the times I didn't feel like worshiping and all the times I didn't feel qualified. I, you know, I was struggling, and yet I, I got outside of my comfort zone, mm-hmm. worshiped God in the way he met me there. Mm. And that's the generosity of it. All these things yeah. that God commands wow. is the promise that he'll meet you there. Mm-hmm. And so it's in obedience. Okay. So now we're going to transition, and it's it's a harsh transition. Uh, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're about to uh, talk about a topic that, honestly, is not easy to talk about. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to read verses 2 through 5, and uh, then we're going to kind of break it down. He says, If there is found among you, within any of your towns, that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, and transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. So just, I'm going to pause there. We'll go to verse 6 in a moment. So we need to understand a few things because this is, obviously this is shocking when you, when you read it. And specifically in, in modern day mm-hmm. language and culture, this is just simply is shocking. It's shocking in every generation. Right. But what God says, so let's give us a little bit of context. Everyone that's going to be a part of this community is choosing to be a part of the community. As God has established it, this is different than every other nation because this is a theocracy. It is one governed by God that they have made a decision through responding to the covenant. So every male would have been circumcised. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the children that were born on the eighth day, they'd be circumcised. All the women were under 
the, the authority of father or husband. So as a community, they said, God, this is what we're agreeing to. So they willfully stepped into this relationship. But God then says, going forward, if anyone worships another God and is leading others basically to do the same, and it's been told to you, research it. Make sure it certainly has happened. Mm -hmm. And then if it has happened, take this person out and stone them to death. It's shocking because you're talking about capital yeah. punishment. Mm -hmm. and, and we look at it, and it, it's so anti-our culture. Now, we still are a culture of capital punishment, though I would say that is definitely lessening uh, as the years go by. But we have different forms in our country, typically reserved for the worst offenses. Mm -hmm. So in our country, I could be wrong on this, but I, I think mainly it has to be murder and or a crime committed while a murder mm -hmm. is being done. Um, I think there are some federal crimes, like if you kill a police officer and different mm -hmm. things. Um, but I think also treason is one, um, which uh, is kind of shocking. But as a, as a nation, we've said, if you commit treason, that is a, uh, a, a crime payable by death, right? But in this context, God says, this is what I want you to do. So anyways, the reason why I say all that is when, when you look at this, I think it, it can seem shocking, but I think we have to take a step back and recognize a couple things. One is God is just, and this is actually justice. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I, we, we want the grace side of it. We love the grace side mm -hmm. of it. But what God is explaining is the spiritual is more important than even the physical. Right. Right. The physical life um, is important. But what that person does to lead a nation spiritually away from God, the spiritual has eternal consequence. Yeah. The physical has a temporary consequence. Right. And so God is trying to establish in this nation, guys, this is how serious this is that this person who worships false God could lead this other group away, who could lead generations away. They'll never know God, and they will be separated from God for eternity. I heard another uh, pastor and theologians, many have said this, is this scripture itself isn't what's shocking. It's that God ever gives grace. Right. It's not that God demands wow. death. It's yeah. that God gives grace yeah, because that is true justice. But as you think about this, I mean, how, how do you process difficult passages like this where you see capital punishment yeah. being commanded? For me... The main thought that I had when I read that, first of all, is, wow, okay, that's really intense. We're mm -hmm. talking about stoning somebody. I can't imagine what, what that would be like. I've never seen something like that. Um, one can only imagine, right? Really intense. And that thought of, wow, this is really intense, led me to what I would, you know, the reconciliation of, like, that means that the alternative is really intense. You know, that means that... That's a good way to... You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, if this is this in, this crazy in, in my cultural mm -hmm. brain, so barbaric and so... It's like, mm -hmm. wow, that means this is very serious. And that means the, mm -hmm. the alternative is dangerous. And not just that person, probably to many. And so for God to say, this is how serious I take this, because it, I, I know God being loved, that everything is an act of justice, an act of love. I know that even in this, even in this, what to me culturally would, would feel barbaric, is God still caring for, for his people enough to say, this will not be okay if I don't take a drastic mm -hmm. measure here. Right, yeah. I'd go back to even what Michael was saying and defining who God is, looking at his character and how he responds in, in most situations or in all situations, and understanding that men are so impressionable, you know, and the mm -hmm. moment that their hearts start getting pulled away, even as you were saying, that weakness kicks in and they could be pulled away. You know, the, the heart yeah. or the thought of generations could be pulled away is devastating. You right. know yeah. what I mean? That we're leading away people from worshiping God and experiencing the blessing of that relationship. Yeah. And so that's kind of just what I have to remind myself is that God views idolatry in this way because it's that devastating to, right. To the nation as a, as a, as a whole, but also to the individual individuals themselves. Right, and that's yeah. where I have to remind myself they're literally about to you know hopefully come out of exile. So it's like yeah. they, like the, the consequences are real. This isn't theory. Like we're mm -hmm. talking about there are real life and death consequences, eternal and otherwise, mm -hmm. for what is about to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's just the best way in my head I've thought. It still feels really intense. I'm not gonna lie. Sometimes <laughs> right, the Bible's yeah. oh, intense, yeah. but you know I just have to have enough trust that God. Okay, there is a plan here, and I know that it's better than whatever I would have. Yeah, we've all said these things, but and, and I think when we take a step back and realize the holiness of God, the fact that he's commanding these things, the fact that he's giving second and third and fourth chances and 100 chances, mm -hmm. he's so full of grace that when we take a step back, we have to realize, no, this is how holy God is, that idolatry really does deserve death. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and, and he doesn't give it to us all the time. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, all of us would be dead. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he gives grace over and over. Okay, yeah, let's, let's go on. Verse 6, he says, just still kind of handling this, this topic, but he wants to understand the weight of it. He says, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person, person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. 
So he's saying that this isn't something to do carelessly and, and casually. There's, there's a seriousness to it. But the only reason why I separated that verse and highlighted it is just for a teaching moment. Um, one of the scriptures that I hear most often, I think, misquoted. Um, and I, again, I'm not saying this to, to sound smart or, or um, to maybe embarrass someone else. I actually think I want to address it theologically. Is in Matthew 18. Here's the verse. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Like we've all heard that, right? <laughs> yeah. And people quote it like on a Sunday. There's two, right. three of us. I've had people go, hey, can I just, can I just ask you, what, what if it's just me? Like, is God not in my midst? Right. Uh, you know, or two or three. And I, and I was like, okay, this passage in Matthew is actually referencing that yeah. where he, if you go back in Matthew 18, he's talking about if a brother sins against you. If someone sins against you, you go to them, you try to handle it. If they don't respond, bring a couple of friends, a couple of witnesses. If, you know, if they still don't respond, take them before the church. If they still don't respond, treat them like an outsider, basically have nothing to do with them, but still show them grace, but just treat them like one that's not of faith. But then God says to them, he says, again, I say to you, if two or uh, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'm among them. Mm -hmm. What God is saying is like, if, if they bind or lose something, if they're saying, okay, this person, we're casting them out, God's literally saying, I'm going to honor that. Yeah. I'm going to allow that person to experience the consequence of not submitting to spiritual authority. So God is with the one. God is with two. This scripture is talking about eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. yep. So just again, just a little quick teaching yeah, moment. Good, yeah. um, don't I sound super smart when I do stuff like that? that that's <laughs> yeah. how I feel when I say that. I'm like, I'm not trying to act that way. Uh, verse 7, the hand of the witnesses, uh, the witnesses shall be first mm -hmm. against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Um, I, I, I couldn't help but miss, or not, like when I, when I saw this truth, to think about, he says it's the hand of the person. I witnessed it. I reported it. I have to be the first to throw the stone. And, and you see this transition in the time of Jesus where, so this person would have to kill that person first. They'd take the first stone to assault them. I think about the woman caught in the act of adultery that is about to fulfill the law, to pick up the stone, and Jesus says to them, okay, let me tell you who's going to be the first to throw the stone. Instead of being the first one to witness their sin, let's let the person who has never sinned be the first one now. Yeah. God, Jesus starts to really tra like dramatically change our perspective of things. God needed us to see the weight of sin, the consequence of sin, and Jesus is like, I need you now to understand the weight of grace. Wow. And, and so, like, I love that in John 8 where he says, you know, you be the first. And all of them, you know, they start thinking through. They're like, well, we're all sinners. They all drop the stones. And Jesus says to her, he says, where are your accusers? They're, right. they're all gone. No witnesses against you. No one that wants to throw a stone against you. And Jesus could have been the one to pick up the stone and throw it. And he, he instead releases. Uh, I just think that's a powerful moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's go to verse, uh, verse 8 as we kind of transition to uh, a new thought. It says, if any case arises... Uh, requiring decision between one kind of homicide or another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judges who is in the office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. So in each community, they would have had their own elders um, in their system, but he says, if there's ever a situation that you can't resolve, I want you to take it outside of your community and go. Um, it, we, we know in context, it probably would have been Jerusalem where the Levitical priests were and ministering this spiritual central hub. Take the issue there and allow them to, to talk about it. So again, this is where God is giving them the civic law and structure. So he says, go to there, take it to them, submit it to them, to the spiritual authority. And then he goes on in verses 10 through 13, and he adds weight to it. Um, now, again, this is a lot of weight because we, we just talked about if someone is in idolatry, put them to death. Right. But now he's going to give them another reason to put someone to death. He says, so you take your, your problem before the judge, the priest, they give you their ruling. You need to honor it. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you according to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision that they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right or to the left, the man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. You shall purge the evil from Israel. 
and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. So there's a lot of weight here. Right. He's, this is God establishing the authority structure and the highest authority in this culture at this time is the priest, the high priest, the Levitical priest. And he says, go to them, but whatever they decide, you need to submit to them. Now, submission to authority is something that I, I highly value, but I also think is something, let's just be honest for a moment, we get the most pushed back in the concept mm -hmm. of when we have to talk about it. It's one of our values for membership. People mm -hmm. are like, what does submission mean? You know, Because in our culture, let's just be honest, we don't celebrate submitting. No, not at we all. celebrate yeah. individuality, individual mm -hmm. rights and powers. So what do you think? Why, why is submission so important to God? Everything revolves around submission. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in a relationship with God, it starts first and foremost there. And I think establishing it first and foremost there can help, you know, us develop that in other areas of our lives. But it's such a valuable tool because it not only gives us perspectives that we wouldn't normally have, especially in this perspective of Levitical priests seeing things from the perspective of the laws and, yeah. and what would govern the people ultimately. So they're seeing it from that perspective and to go against that would then ultimately be going against the authority of God, right. but also against mm -hmm. the authority that God had established within that community. All so. right, speak, speak more to that. I think the point that I, I love, and I know that this is what I even have in my own notes, mm -hmm. they see something you don't see. How often is, I mean, that's true for us. You know, we're handling situations and, and a person can get upset and the decision you're ma we're making or whatever, and, and we're like, you don't see what we see. Mm -hmm. we, we have, sometimes we have more information. Sometimes we just have a different perspective, but even in our own lives, we are not perfectly self-aware, oh, right? Absolutely. So just speak to that just for a moment of like the value of trusting that someone else might have a different perspective than I do. Yeah. I think I see it most in the context of connect groups. That's one of the one things that people celebrate the most is that I've been living it as an individual my entire life. But the moment that I had to get into a group, some people start to talk from their perspectives and it's completely different, different than right, mine. Yeah. And it starts to give them a better perspective or a view on how God operates in people's lives, but also on maybe how they've always handled something in their life and that it is maybe inappropriate or not the correct way to do it. And so I think being willing to submit to others, but also submit to new perspectives is such a valuable tool. You know, clearly if it's led by God and it's mm -hmm. influenced by God, but uh, but being self-aware sometimes happens in the context of relationships and uh, hopefully you're gaining self-awareness, you know, sure. or being open to gaining self-awareness yeah. in every situation. Michael, you, you had, before you came on staff, so in your ministry training, you had, were part of a community that really did stress spiritual authority. Obviously there can be some, some negatives to that, but, but for overall it was a positive. And, and I yeah. know for me being a having being your boss in in that sense it's something i've always respected is there really has been an honor culture a submission culture but what you so i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna say something that sounds like a negative you didn't you weren't raised with the personality that you submitted to authority <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah fair. let me yeah. word it another way you were rebellious right? <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely so that was a transition for you yeah big okay time. to where now it's funny because like you tell me the stories of your childhood and you're a great storyteller. So they, they seem funny, but it honestly sounds like you're describing someone different. Like uh, yeah, I'm totally. like, I don't know that person. Here's a person. I know. Talk about the value of submission, yeah. what that transition looked like, what had to happen in your mind and heart and why now you see the value of it. Yeah. Submission terrified me growing up. Like I hated it. Um, the idea of giving someone your agency is not fun. And mm -hmm. to this day, honestly, as passionate as I am about like, yeah, submission's good. It's still tough. Like, <laughs> it's still really hard sometimes. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, growing up, I was just, I wanted so bad to be my own person and anything that stood in the way of that, it was like, well, wreck it. Like, get it, get out of here. And I was just such an ordinary kid. And I went to this program called Master's Commission, um, heavy emphasis on authority. So every second year in the program is in charge of the first years in the program. So that means you have 19-year-olds <laughs> in charge of 18-year-olds wild <laughs> what could go wrong yeah. with that crazy and what was so intense is i remember i was so angry this second year and he was, i felt like he was the worship leader and i got there and i, I thought i was so cool i played like I, I played like a bunch of instruments i'm like yeah man wherever you need me it's like all right well i need a bassist so i want you to play bass and i was like all right well i sing too um and i also like do you don't have to put me on bass it's like the nerd instrument is how i felt at the time like you know I, i'd like to do something else and he goes no i'm gonna leave you on bass because i think you're arrogant and who told me that and i was like ah Awesome. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> this guy I don't know who in my arrogant, like 17, 18 year old brain, I'm like, bro, I'm a better musician than you anyways. Who cares? I'm so angry and I'm so frustrated. And I remember that was just for the rest of that year. Me and this guy are just going 
head to head. And I remember oh, at one man. point, this is so foolish. Don't, if there's any young people listening, I'm not glorifying this. It's just, I was just dumb. He goes, he told me to do something. And I was just like, and he said, dude, you have to know how to submit to authority. And I was just like, the Bible also says, don't submit to a fool. And I'm like, so oh, <laughs> we're telling him that. So I got called into a meeting after I said that I thought I was real slick. I thought I was being real clever and biblical. And, and uh, the director of the program calls me into a meeting and he just opened up his Bible and he was really kind. Mm. And he just said like, he, he talked about David and Saul and how David yeah. submitted to Saul in spite mm-hmm. of the fact that Saul was trying to take his life. And, so he, and he closed his Bible and he's like, has so-and-so like chucked a spear at your head today? <laughs> he's, like, he's like, no. He's like, then shut up. <laughs> he's yeah. like, you need to learn how to submit to authority in your life. And it was legitimately a breakthrough moment where I, I wept. I called my dad and I apologized. <laughs> I called my worship leader growing up and apologized. Like pe- peers, like people who I know, yeah, how I know in terrible. hindsight, I know that I was so disrespectful. And I know that God placed them in positions of authority in my life. And I, and I didn't handle it well. And I didn't submit to them. And I didn't submit to God as a result of that. Um, and so this really fearful moment of, man, I don't want to give my agency up. Like, I want to be my own person. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I'm also like, you know, it's kind of pretentious to talk about sometimes, but a type eight in the Enneagram. So I love power and control. Like, I'm like, you know, so I want to be in control stuff. It makes me feel safe. It makes me feel unsafe to not have power right. and control. It makes me feel very unsafe to give that up to somebody. But what I just had to realize that the more dangerous position is to not be submitting because I'm not submitting to God. Mm-hmm. If God designed me to submit to the authority that he put in my life and I'm not doing that, that's scarier than giving my agency up for a moment mm-hmm. and allowing someone to say, hey, you know what? This, is, this might not be the way I would do it. I don't want to play bass. You're annoying, but I love you and I'm going to submit to you. You know, as frustrating as those moments can be, that is the safer way to live because that's the way that we were designed to live. And that was the pivot moment where it clicked of like, that's, this is how God designed me, whether I liked it or not. Mm-hmm. You know? He not only designed you, but he, he blesses you in that when you submit, you mm-hmm. know, if, like I said, in the beginning of our Bible study, all of these things are rooted in faith. I, I give first to God, believing he'll bless second, right? Yeah. Same thing in submission. I, I'm submitting not even to the person, you know, that's why when you have scriptures like Romans 13 that say submit to all authority, we can do that because we know above all authority is God. Absolutely. We can submit in faith, believing God really can work it right. out. Uh, the, the, the same conversation I referenced earlier, I was out with my son Titus, and he asked about you know why pastors fail and different things. And he started asking me about just my own leadership and, and the structure I set up. And I'm, a, I'm an Enneagram 8 also. I, I have that, that same drive. And one of the things, I was just talking with Mackie about this last week, um, Enneagram 8, they're their biggest fear is that someone will try to control them, yeah. which is a, a somewhat kind of redemptive way of saying like they want to be in charge. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, uh, and, but there is a truth to that. A submission feels like, well, I'm giving someone power to control, mm-hmm. but when you can cross over in faith to say, exactly, I'm yes. giving God yep. power to control. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's different. And when I was talking to Titus about it, I said, he was asking about my leadership style. And I said, you know, I recognize very early that if I created a culture where I was a power to, unto myself, I would become very evil very quickly. Mm-hmm. And because and I know my nature, I know yeah, my, my lack of character, I need that. So I said, I created a culture of transparency where I share what I'm going through, not because I want to, because I want everyone around me, like the other pastors and the elders. So you know that even as elders, I'll, I'll share like, this is, this is the good, this is the bad. I do the same thing with the pastors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's the value in it. So the things that we promote, submission, is not something that we're promoting for people that submit to us. We're promoting submission for ourselves equally to say, like, we, we need to submit. And even within our culture, I think you and I had a conversation about this yesterday, um, yesterday the day before, that we have created a, a weird hierarchy in our environment that is mutual submission, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and other people will look at it and think like, that's odd. Yeah. It might not have been you. It might've been Mackie. I talked to you cause you looked at no, me it like, was, it was, was us? Yeah, okay. yeah. I was curious <laughs> about where are we going. All right. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was me. Was it, you ever see that where someone's eyes go <laughs> yeah. like that? I was like, <laughs> we did. It wasn't you. Um, but I mean, just in our culture, because we wanted to teach mutual submission. Right. So there are people that, you know, you could be an elder and submit to someone else. You can be a pastor and submit to this person. You can be a director and submit to that person. Yeah, uh, because we just see the value in it. Mm-hmm. Super good. Okay, so let's um, let's go on to verses fourteen and fifteen. And uh, so he goes on and he says, now he's he's going to talk about uh, that concept of kings. He says, uh, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you uh, who is not your brother. 
only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord, uh, uh, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Uh, so it's kind of a, kind of an odd passage because you know at times Moses just kind of hops from from topic to topic. You're yeah. like, and another thing, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> One more thing. Uh, so let, let's just quickly, uh, I'll, I'll just kind of give a background. This was God's initial desire was, was for them not to have a king. God's initial desire they would go into the promised land. In that they would they would develop healthy community within that structures that we've already looked at. You're going to set up judges. You're going to have the elders. You're going to have the priest. Spiritually, within your own culture, there are things to protect you, but from outside forces, God would be the protector, and he would raise up what he would call judges. Mm -hmm. And and so this would be like Deborah. This would be like Gideon. Uh, Samson was supposed to be, though he's a a lesson in in failure. Um, (laughs) But God, he would raise up these judges to, at times, stir up the army, go and fight. And then, honestly, they would kind of go back to their lives. Uh, that was God's heart. The judges became even known somewhat prophetic. So Samuel was technically a judge, but we also know Samuel as a prophet. But at the end of Samuel's time, uh, the, the people started to cry out for a king. God knew that that would happen in this. And, but it wasn't God's desire. So even if you, when you read it in Samuel, it's very sad. It's a very, very yeah. sad passage of Scripture where Samuel is feeling rejected. You know, he has honored, he has led with honor. I mean, right. he has never compromised. Um, he's really one of the few characters in Scripture that we don't see a, a situation where he sinned and, and dishonored God. And he goes to God, and he's feeling that rejection. And this is the sad part. God goes, Samuel, let's just be clear. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Right. And, um, and so, but God goes, but go ahead and, and give them a king. But when God says, okay, so you're going to desire this, you're going to desire a king, Here's some parameters. One, I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose a king. You, you're not going to do an election. You're not going to pick a person. I'm going to choose the king. And he says, make sure it's one from among you, so you're not taking an outside or a foreigner. You want someone that has the same values, the same ultimate goal. And then he just says, like, three kind of random things. They, they can't get a lot of horses. <laughs> so you read it, and you go, okay, so God hates horses. Okay. <laughs> you know, like, worst specifically animal. from Egypt, he hates the Egyptian horses. Um, but, but in that, it, it's, it's so much deeper than that. It's, it's God is saying that. And even as I was like studying it and, and you start to see it, you go like, oh yeah, it's, it's such a deeper issue. If a king were to accumulate a lot of horses, the horses revolved around military might. Right. The king would start to put his hope in his own power, right. the power of his military. If, if he started to accumulate wives, and again, that's a, an odd thing. There's a lot of questions about that. But for a king, the vast majority of wives that they had were actually military alliances. It, it would be another nation. Mm-hmm. We'll give you a daughter. Um, and she'll become your wife, one of your wives, and now we have an alliance with you, that the king would start to put his hope in those alliances. And then the last part about accumulating silver and gold, he would put his hope in the money. But the second layer of it is the same thing would happen to the people. The people would see the king with the large army and put their hope in the king. They would see the king with all the alliances. They would put their hope in the king. They would see the king with all the money, and they would put their hope in the king. Mm -hmm. And what God is always trying to say, what he was trying to model for them, is I want you to put your hope in me. And so I don't want you to even have a king. I want you to put your hope in me. If you're going to have a king, make sure that king always puts his hope in me. And it goes back to the same concept we looked at earlier of idolatry, right. of we put our hope in things. So here's what I want to ask you guys. So, so when, we, when we look at a story like this and we, and we, see, we see the potential for failure, mm-hmm. uh, and we even saw many of the kings failed in this area, uh, some degree, even Solomon specifically, you know, where Solomon accumulated these three things, right? Mm-hmm. Wives and, right. and horses and, and, and wealth and allowed his heart to, to drift from God. In our lives as Christians, what are some things that we can do, some practical things that we can do to not allow our hearts to drift from God? Solomon had every reason. The mm-hmm. kings had every reason to see God's faithfulness and their hearts drifted. Same thing can happen to us. What, what, just, do you have anything in your own personal life that you say, you know what, these are just a couple of habits that I have just to make sure that, that I don't drift from God? Yeah, you know, I really don't, I don't want this to be a cop-out answer, but, but here, here's the reality. Following the things that God asked us to follow, I have always found puts me in this place because God often asks me to do things that are conventionally unwise. Mm-hmm. So submission, conventionally unwise. Again, for someone who I like, I like control, it makes me feel safe. Right. Giving control to somebody, very unsafe. Now I don't have control. Tithing, I want money. It helps me do things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I want money, my money. Good. Yeah. Money, good. It helps me do things, makes me feel safe. 
Something happens, I have money to help me. All of these things that God asked us to do are, are conventionally, again, if you were to just remove any concept of faith or a deity or a or God, and you say survival of the fittest, so many things that God asks us are anti-survival of the fittest. Kindness, generosity, being nice to sick people, all anti-survival of the fittest. <laughs> it's all inherently dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if I say, again, what's more dangerous is not doing the things that God oh, asks so me good, to do. Man. And when you yeah. really believe that God is who he says he is, and when I, I really believe I'm made in his image, I have to submit to the things he asks me to do. And in that, I find such a deep level of safety. And the safety in my life that when I feel hurt and when something bad happens, I know where to go to because I know that I already have that. Like, I'm already where I need to be to, to, to talk to God. I'm already in this space where I feel full of the Holy Spirit. And I, and I, feel, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I have that access point when I pray. And, and because I'm submitting to God, because I'm, I'm listening when he prompts me, mm-hmm. it makes me feel safe that I can hear him and all these things. So for me... So I don't want to be a cop and answer, but if you, if you do the things that God asks you to do, it comes with such a level of safety that I can't describe. Yeah, good. Yeah, one of the simple things, just to kind of piggyback off of that, for me is this idea of welcoming feedback. Like, mm-hmm. there's so, so many good. times that I don't want to welcome feedback. The last thing that I want is somebody's thought about me. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I'm seeking authority or somebody who mm-hmm. I have influence in my life, a mentor or a spouse, you know, that type of thing. So welcoming feedback gives me perspectives, even as we were talking about earlier, on my life that I wouldn't normally have. Right. So if I'm yeah, acting yeah. like a jerk, you know, and somebody recognizes it and, and, you know, speaks to me in a healthy way and says, you know, you're acting this way, that has been such a great, not only freedom for me, which is weird mm-hmm. because it feels like it should be the opposite, but also a direction for me that, uh, oh, that's an awareness. I need to go now change that behavior. So, you know, we're really good about the staff and doing that. I've set up people in my life who are very, mm-hmm. you know, candid with me to speak to me and say, hey, this behavior sucks right now. You know right. what I mean? But <laughs> yeah. also even in my relationship with my wife, we have that relationship where yeah. if she recognizes something um, similar to your situation, you right. know, where they'll just, they'll give it to you. And and there's there's nothing else attached to it, but but just healthy feedback about how, you know, I can change those behaviors in my life. Yeah, I, th- I think you referenced that we have this culture as a staff. I think you have to be purposed about it mm-hmm. to invite True dialogue. Mm-hmm. I, I really, unless you have a person that, for whatever reason, just naturally is okay with confrontation, which is very few. I mean, even you and I were Enneagram 8s. People would say that about us. But even then, that doesn't mean I want all confrontation. Right, still, you yeah, know? yeah. Um, but to invite people in to give me your opinion. Mm-hmm. Give me your opinion. So, like, for us as a staff, if you're on our staff, you're supposed to, like, once a week have a conversation with someone where you say, hey, how's your heart doing? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, and you get that person. You build that relationship where you can go, you know what? I'm finding myself being really impatient with my spouse. I'm finding myself being impatient with my kids and, and, or that person can say to you like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. You know, like your body language is whack. Yeah. And, uh, and I do that sometimes to our staff. I, I try, I don't word it that way, but like, <laughs> yeah. but you just go, Hey, like you doing okay? Because like, you don't look like it. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that to be in judgment, but I also want to acknowledge like, let's, let's talk about whatever that issue is. And, and I think for the, the Kings, he was saying like, they had to be purposed about it. And so the, even the last couple of verses that we'll look at, he gives them something really practical to do. He says, and, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. It's kind of a fascinating idea. He's like, he wants mm-hmm. him to have like the king's copy, um, you know, like the, his own little handbook of yeah. the law of what he's supposed to do and not do. And I, and I am imagining it's more than just this one law that he's supposed to write down and keep. Maybe it's just the one law, mm. but I think it's more the concept of the laws of God. Mm. Uh, many even suspect, if you guys know the, the story of Josiah, which I absolutely love, I'll actually reference or I'll actually teach his story in our mm. next series that we're <laughs> going to do on Kings. But Josiah uh, was raised in a culture that wasn't following the law of God. And one of his leaders finds a copy of the law of God, starts to read it and has this panic moment where he's like, uh-oh, <laughs> we're not doing this. So he brings it to the king, goes, King, you have to read this. King goes, okay. So he starts reading it in the presence of the king. And it says like Josiah starts to tear his clothes, which was a sign of mourning and yeah. fear in their part. And he's like, we're not doing this. But they would have been doing it if they had a copy and they were right. constantly reading, if it had value to them. He says, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And I I love this. God says, take the law, keep looking at it, keep focusing at it, keep running at it. And here's God's promise. His kingdom would remain long because God would bless them. Mm -hmm. God's blessing to all of this. So in our lives, all these things we looked at, 
the, the end where we began, it all requires faith, but when we walk in obedience, God blesses it, and then we discover, as you said, that that is the best way to live. Yep, absolutely. The world kind of paints this image, it could be better, it's not. Mm -hmm. Following God is the best way to live. Yeah, Amen. super good. Well, thanks guys for joining us, and thank you everyone else for joining us in our Bible study. Well, thank you for joining us today. We pray that this was a blessing to your life. We pray that you not only understand the passages better, but you understand how it applies to your life and some practical steps that you can do so that this information can be more than that. It can be life-changing for you. And here's what we always ask. If this is a blessing to you, do us a favor, share it with family and friends. You can do so personally by sending them a link. You can also share it on social media. And, and we know that God is going to use this to be a blessing to other people's lives. So in, in advance, I just want to say thank you.